This season of My Comic Shop History is brought to you in part by Undiscovered Realm in White Plains, New York. UR has the biggest selection of Funko Pops around, with more than a thousand in stock, starting at only $5 each, as well as a large selection of rare, high-end, and exclusive Pops. UR also hosts daily card game and video game tournaments, and sets up at dozens of comic conventions across the country. Check out Undiscovered Realm in person or online, and be sure to tell them Desi Westside sent you. Welcome to My Comic Shop History. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. Our Comic-Con adventures continue with a look at another piece of the convention puzzle, comics journalism. I am joined by two guests, one representing the press and the other giving us the creator perspective. To my right, we have returning guest Brandon Montclair, who listeners will recall was one of the former owners of Alternate Realities and today is the writer of Rocket Girl and Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Brandon, welcome back. Hey, thanks. Good to be back. And across from me, we have a new voice to the My Comic Shop History podcast network. Uh, we have Alex Liu, uh, managing editor of the Comics Beat. Alex, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Your smile is brightening my day already. Wow, I know. If only listeners could see this, but I think you know, th- through your description, they'll, uh, they'll know how much fun that we're having here. Hardcore uh, comics podcast aficionados. Me and Alex have been on quite a few uh, podcasts together. Yeah, that's we did, uh, right. We did Podcorn Podcast for about, what, two that's years? Right. Give or Soon, take. Yeah, exactly. When there was nobody else, Alex uh, stepped up. We, uh, we had a little nice run on Twitch. There you go. Yeah, this is like a crossover of sorts because, yeah, you guys did do the Podcorn Podcast, and now we're, we're uh, recording together here. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of weird being being on the other end of the mic, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, I've I've been on other podcasts as a guest, and it is kind of funny to mm. to be on the other side of it. So typically, when I have a new guest on the show, it's a tradition for me to ask them about their comic shop history. So sure. again, we're really going to be focusing on conventions for this season and this episode. But I do always like to get a sense of comic shops that have played an important part uh, in your history as a fan, as a collector. So mm-hmm. um, Alex, what are what are the, some of the shops that uh, were part of your comic shop history? Uh, so I came into comics actually pretty late. I didn't read comics as a kid very much. Like I had a, I had a copy of, uh, the old Bartman comic from the Simpsons when I, that I got when I was a little kid. And then I, I was reading manga a lot in middle school, but I didn't get into like American comics until high school. And, um, at the time I was living in Parsippany, New Jersey. Um, and like the big shop there is uh, funny books. Um, it's, it's really, really cool. Like it used to, like it used to be like the, I think the firehouse for the town before there wasn't really a town. Uh, and then I got converted into this like little shop. I would go there because I was playing magic. You're getting confused with Ghostbusters. No, 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 no. See the Ghostbusters firehouse is a lot bigger. This one is like a little like Caddyshack kind of thing. Um, and, uh, sorry that, that siren threw me off. That's okay. We'll um, just cut that out. All right. Okay. Uh, so when I started, when I was playing Magic at the time, and then I got kind of interested in like reading comics, um, I think one of the first ones that I picked up was was actually Watchmen because I had just seen like the the movie version at the time, um, and then I got pretty deep into it. I, I started going to Funny Books a lot. Um, I went to Fat Moose a little bit, which was another comic shop in town. Yeah, I remember when uh, we were messaging about last season of My Comic Shop History, and you were very gracious. You uh, wrote a, a terrific piece about the season three of My Comic Shop History and the comic shop travels. And I know you specifically mentioned Fat Moose, which was one of the stores that was featured last season. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I like that place a lot. Like I, when I, I the first time I actually visited, it was in a totally different town. Yeah, it has um, moved. It has yeah, moved a couple of times. Yeah, and and I knew that place as a kid because it was like the place that you you could go to buy like really old packs of magic like stuff they didn't print anymore um 
but then like when I started getting into it, um, the owner there was really, really gracious to me. And he like introduced me to a lot of series that like were not things that I would probably find on my own. Um, because I had a pretty hard and fast rule that I wasn't going to read single issue comics when I first started reading comics. Cause that seemed like kind of like anathema to me to some extent, um, as someone who like avoided TV because he didn't like having to follow up every week. Hmm. Uh, like I don't, I would only watch movies. So like reading graphic novels just seemed like the comic extension of that. Um, and he introduced me to stuff like uh, Arkham Asylum and to uh, Concrete, uh, which is still one of my favorite series to this day. Um, and then when I moved to New York for college, uh, Fruit and Planet was like the place because like I, would, I went to NYU. So this was like the one right here. Right. And then, so Brandon, how did you, how did you come across this young gentleman here? Maybe he found you. How did you guys uh, connect? Yeah, I, I do know. I do remember. Sometimes I don't remember these things. Do you want me but, to? Do you want me to do it? No, it's all right. You've talked enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> this guy. No, uh, I was. I don't know. I teach at NYU, but I don't think I was teaching at NYU at the time. Um, but my wife is faculty at NYU. That's what she does full time. I, I I teach kind of on a lark. Um, so uh, somebody from the English department or whatever it is, because it was at the engineering school. Yeah, my uh, my thesis advisor, Teresa Faroli. Right, said, oh, can I, I don't know if she contacted my wife or contacted me. I don't I don't remember how it happened, to be honest. But That I don't know on the back yeah, end. Alex was working on um, his Grant Morrison thesis, which I still haven't read. Um, I think it's probably... <laughs> Nobody should read it. Probably an embarrassment, but... Yeah, I got an award. Well, there you go. And so, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, and I don't remember... That I do remember. So we met, and I don't know... If you want to be talk about getting into, I don't even remember what we talked about, uh, and I don't know how it became. It went from meeting to talk about, hey, I'm into comics and I'm graduating, to you helping out with the podcast when me and Amy were doing it and all that. But I think what it was was basically um, Teresa set me up with you because one of the like core texts from my thesis was All Star Superman, okay, um, and obviously like you edited All Star Superman. Yes. So, like, it seemed it seemed like a logical extension to have a conversation with you about the book, um, and then from there, I think I told you that I really wanted to work in comics after I graduated, and so like you and Amy very graciously took me on to um, do some like production work for Rocket Girl. Actually, that was the initial thing. Like, I, I remember I did a couple of like uh, back cover color designs for Amy um, okay. for the second half of the book. Um, and then we, from there, we sort of branched into doing Podcorn because Chris Robinson, who just left to go to Marvel, um, was leaving the show and you needed someone on the back end again. Yeah. Chris Robinson, who's now uh, an editor at Marvel. Yeah. I used to, used to put the, the podcast together. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it just sort of like grew over time into like a beautiful blossoming friendship. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Brandon, we've talked about this, you know, the previous times you've been on the show, but you've worn many hats in the industry, retailer, editor, creator. One of the few things you haven't been, unless mm. I'm mistaken, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is, is a journalist, comics journalist. No, I've never been a comics so journalist. So this is perfect. So again, we have the creator perspective, we have the, uh, the journalist perspective. Now, before we get into the beat and your role there, because I'm very curious about all of that, of course, um, I understand one of your, your other gigs, you do work at NYU Law? Is this yeah, yeah, that's my day job. Okay. My day job, too, is also at a law school. But what do you do there? Uh, I do administrative aid work. Like, it's essentially, um, I work with uh, a couple of professors and a couple of programs that are geared towards um, helping law students become law professors when they graduate. Oh, interesting. Yeah. What about you? I am in admissions. Oh, so no way. I convince people to go to law school. I tell them how great it is. So you're the <laughs> one with all the power. I have a little bit of power, not not much. 
I'm not not that much. What's but, your hard uh, sell? It's we don't. That's the thing. We don't. I don't do a hard sell. Okay. I encourage people to come and visit and experience it for themselves and make their own decision. I don't. Mm. I don't push it on them. I want them to uh, to come to it. Let them come to you. Yeah, I don't think it's the same. Probably in school admissions because you know you you have a criteria. You let people in, then they have their experience, and it's years and years. But yeah. working in comics, I have very much like oh, you can't. I've, I've had to learn that you can't ever give the hard sell because then you're like, because you know, you're only working with a, even if you're an editor, you're only working with a couple of people and it's really just a one-on-one relationship multiplied out. So what happens is you give a hard sell, then all of a sudden you're on the hook and if things don't work out, like, oh, you're, you're the person whose fault it is. So I've had to learn like, oh, you got to make sure people are really excited to do stuff and not doing it because you tell them it's going to be great or you tell them it's going to be this or that because then all of a sudden, like I said, as soon as it gets, uh, something goes wrong, it's like, oh, I, I didn't even, I never wanted to do it. You made me do it. So it's like, oh, okay. That's so, our first professional lesson. Yeah, no, it's true. So. Yeah, very much so. So let's talk about the beat. Now, I imagine for most of our comic book fans who are listening to this, they're, they're probably familiar with the site. But in case they're not, um, you know, what can you tell us about it, especially in terms of its scale compared to something like a newsarama or comic book resources? Like, where does the beat fall in that world? Sure. So statistically, we are the number five ranked comics news site on the internet. Um, I believe it's CBR, there's Newsarama, uh, Bleeding Cool, and then one other one that I can't remember right offhand. Um, and uh, like, in terms of identity, I would say that where we fall is that we are sort of the uh, unofficial like industry magazine to some extent. Um, like we, we don't tend to focus all that much on like the, the listicles or the uh, typical like, um, star casting breaking news stuff that other sites will focus on like the comics adjacent things that tend to dominate the conversation nowadays like we're very much about um making sure that people who are fans of comics know what's going on in comics like people who get hired in the industry people who are moving uh what are the new titles that are coming out and you know that sort of thing um like i would say that we're we're probably more like a blog to some extent than we are like a typical like news site like CBR would be. Okay. And then what does a managing editor do exactly? Uh, so being a managing editor is essentially being the master of the back end. Uh, it means having... That's what they called Alex in high school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I walked into that one, didn't I? Um, it was right there. It was. It was. You gave me the look. I didn't catch it until he said it. <laughs> um, well, you know, I try to keep things professional, but you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm secretly only 11 at heart, so you have to forgive me. Uh, I'm not going to catch on to these things before you tell me. Um, so essentially... Uh, That's going to be the title of this episode, by the way. <laughs> Master of the Back End <laughs> with Alex Liu. <laughs> uh, I'm like, I'll take it. I'll take it. So you're the, you're the yeah. So I'm the managing editor of the beat, um, which means that uh, I'm in charge of primarily scheduling posts. Like we have, we work with a lot of freelancers and we work with a lot of staff writers who um, have a lot of stuff going up. And uh, one of the big problems that we were running into a couple of years ago was that uh, a lot of the times you would have posts coming up simultaneously because um, you were you would essentially be allowed to post whenever you wanted to. Oh, okay. Um, and, you know, that's problematic mostly for traffic reasons because when you do this, um, Google tends to frown at you. Like, uh, in terms of search engine optimization, you want, your, you want your website to be publishing regularly, but you don't want to be publishing as though you're spamming the internet. Um, so it's my job to make sure that uh, everything gets fit into a schedule. Um, and in the meantime, 
the thing that I really love doing, the thing that like I've sort of made my own thing is that I really like working on features for the site. Um, because uh, as much as I enjoy editing, I like a big part of my life is like wanting to talk about the books that I love. Like I really love writing a lot. Um, so uh, I work with my uh, entertainment editor, Kyle Pinion, um, and our new third, uh, Louis Haled, on uh, the DC um, Roundup, which is like a weekly review of DC Comics. Um, I also do a lot of interviews with creators. Um, like I've talked to people like Calista Brill, like the, uh, what's her new title for a second? She got promoted recently. She was executive editor at the time. Um, and then- Executive editor plus. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so- I've trailed off a little bit. No, that's perfectly fine. No, I mean, speaking of your interviews, um, I, you know, I've read a bunch of them and I enjoy them. You always do seem genuinely interested and the questions are always very thoughtful. Brandon, you've, you've been interviewed by Alex for the beat, correct? I don't know. Have I? You, I feel uh, like I've read We did. This. We did yeah. actually. Oh, okay. but I don't think I conducted that interview. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. We had, someone, uh, we, we had someone else from the site talk to Brandon and Natasha around the time that Moon Girl was first coming out. Uh, I get enough of this guy on a regular basis because we were literally recording a show every week. <laughs> It was like I was interviewing him every week for two years. Fair enough. Yeah, I was going to ask what it's like. Well, I guess in a sense then, what, what is it like to be interviewed by, by Alex? Uh, well, yeah, like I said, I, you know, it's, it's funny because, like I said, I don't, I don't think we were, it was, you know, we never had a traditional interview uh, because, I don't know, maybe the bead thinks it's some kind of conflict. That, that makes sense. But uh, no, it's, like I said, Alex is, uh, we had a lot of conversations and they tended to be very, um, very inside baseball, you know, we would talk about, Oh, like, like sales trends and, 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 uh, you know, the direct market and stuff like that. And, uh, which is a thing that you only do on the beat you right. No, no, no real, maybe bleeding cool does it a little bit. They kind of talk about the business of comics, but we had a lot of those conversations and, um, no, I, I, I can go pretty long. Alex likes going long too, which is probably the both of us together. Maybe it's not a good mix. <laughs> yeah. So the big thing about me is that like, um, I, I take a relatively wide scale, like wide scale approach to looking at the industry. There's nothing that like I'm particularly like adherent to. Um, I like good content and I like learning about things. So when I interview people, I try to meet them halfway. I try to talk about what they're interested in talking about. So if it's with someone like um, Yuko Ota and Anath Hurst, who do uh, the webcomic, um, our cats are more famous than us, the Johnny Wanderer stuff. Um, like we talked a lot about identity because like I am an Asian American, like I can talk about these things and I enjoy having those conversations with people who are also interested in having them. But with people like Brandon who know their stuff about the industry itself, I like talking about inside baseball type things. Like my basic goal is to make sure that an interview doesn't feel like an interview. It feels more like a conversation. Right. Yes. I think those always tend to be the most engaging for both the participants and the, the listeners or readers. Yeah. I mean, in the end, like we're here, we're here to talk about the thing that we love and we're here to make friends, you know, right? Right. So that's what you do. And then how did you get to that point? How did you become managing editor? Uh, it happened on a bit of a lark, to be quite honest. Um, I was in my senior year at NYU, and I was working on this thesis. I had just started. Um, and I was going through like a rough period in my life. Like It was a sort of like a stereotypical like senior life crisis where you're, where you're like sitting on the steps and you're wondering, what am I going to do when I graduate in like eight months? Like I literally don't know what I want. Go to law school. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> you, you know, we don't want to go into my, my, the history of my parents about this. Um, when they learned that I wasn't going to be a doctor and I wasn't going to be a lawyer, they, they, <laughs> they had words for me. Um, but, uh, I had just finished interning for a company, uh, paper cuts as their editorial assistant. 
And uh, I had a lot of fun doing that, but I like I wasn't totally sure whether or not like that would be the place where I would end up um, until I got to New York Comic Con that year, um, and like I had this incredible weekend. Um, I'd been to cons before. I think that year would have been my fifth year at New York Comic Con, but I'd never had a show like that where like I could go to the Paper Cuts booth and I could talk to the people there and they knew me and they liked me and they let me hang out with them. Um, and like I was going to panels um, and people knew who I was, which was sort of interesting. Like I'd never really felt that sense of community before. Um, and that made me really think hard to myself, like, huh, maybe this could be my career. Maybe I could do something here. And then more solidly, um, there was a comics journalism panel uh, at Comic-Con that weekend. Um, I remember I went in there and at the end of it, I don't even know why I did it, but like on a lark, I decided to approach um, Hannah Mean Shannon, who was um, editor at Bleeding Cool at the time, and Heidi, who was obviously the editor-in-chief of The Beat. Um, and I pitched them both, um, and essentially <laughs> Heidi was the one that got back to me first. Um, and, uh, so I was doing a little bit of writing for them. Um, and I kept doing the writing. And when we got to BookCon that year, um, Heidi just sort of said, Hey, I need some more help at the beat. Do you want to like be the managing editor for a little bit? And I think it was like only supposed to be a temporary thing. It wasn't supposed to be more for a few weeks because like San Diego was coming up and she needed someone on the back end to make sure that all the news that people on the floor couldn't report was getting reported. So you mastered the back end. I did master the back end. That that was literally the time I dominated the back end hardest because uh, <laughs> uh, I had just started my job at NYU Law uh, that month in July of 2015. And I literally took half days that entire week of San Diego just so I could like write up all the news that was happening. Um, and I think I put up like like 100 posts that weekend. I've never done that before or since. But not all at once. Not all at once. Not all at once. There was a good half hour timing block between them. All right. Well, that's important. Well, all right. That's a perfect segue then on this note of conventions, because again, that is the, the real thrust of this season. And in each of these episodes, I'm speaking to the different players who are part of this convention world. So organizers and fans and creators and cosplayers and, and the journalists. And, you know, Brandon, I know you are quite a veteran of comic book conventions, yeah, not as a journalist, but as a, you've, you've again, worn many hats. You've been there as a dealer. You've been there. Were you ever there with alternate realities? Sure. Yeah. I, mean, I know you were a dealer on your own, right? Before, before that. Well, well yeah, before. Exactly. And then yeah. with Alternate Realities, now as a creator. Mm -hmm. I mean, roughly speaking, how many shows have you attended? Jeez, I wouldn't even... Because I know we were talking about this before we sat down to record, and uh, it's, I know it's been a long time and a lot of shows. I mean, I mean you know, they go say, oh, it's like thousands, and you say, ah, how long do you really live life? But it's it's probably, it's probably like a lot more than 200 shows. You know what I mean? Well, here's an interesting question so, for you. At what point yeah. do you stop counting? Well, I mean, sometime before 200, I guess. Um, and a mix of shows, right? So you've been to the big yeah, ones, but then a smaller well, ones, they, too. Yeah, I mean, they didn't have big shows when I started. I started... My first job in comics was in shows, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, call that a job. I mean, it was a job for me, but buying and selling at the uh, Great Eastern Conventions, which were at the Roosevelt Hotel, which makes a minor appearance in the French Connection. Not the Comic-Con, but the Roosevelt Hotel. Um 
So you were you were you were going there on behalf of alternate realities. No, this was like years before alternate realities. I was in seventh grade, graduate in the summer between. I was going there before that just as a fan. So even earlier, uh, probably fifth or sixth grade, I started going to the monthly shows in the city, and there were one day shows in a hotel ballroom, and mm. just people selling back issues, and a few artists, usually local artists. Um, I guess they would have been selling originals, but I never collected originals. I got a few sketches sometimes from, from artists that I liked. What was it like to be able to go to a show on your own when you were that young? Yeah, it's like a different world. But I mean, it's a different world meaning from what it is today because it was, you know, I, my father lived in the city and I was usually there on weekends. So that would work for conventions. So mm-hmm. you just go, get dropped off and, come, you know, come back. Um, at some point, I was old enough to take a subway there. And I guess it makes sense around seventh grade. That's crazy to me. Like yeah. the only time I ever went to a show when I was a kid was New York Anime Festival in like the seventh grade. And I lost my cell phone on the one day that I went. So I wasn't allowed to go to any of the shows again. Yeah. So no, but I started selling at shows. Uh, like I said, I, I was just asking Anthony, I don't even remember how old one would be 12 years old, something like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Brandon didn't even buy into alternate realities until he was like sophomore in high school, right? No, no well, I just kidding. didn't even. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, that's the I thing. Was, though, uh, I was 19 when I bought into alternate reality, so well, it's yeah. I, I was I was a seven year convention retailer. Where did that money come from? Well, what, what money came from the comics, from the books. Wheeling and dealing. Yeah, I mean, Jeez. see, back then it was very back issue based, mm-hmm. and things would get hot, and you'd be able to sell them and, and flip and everything else. And um, so I had comics. I already had you know you kind of literally start with your own collection. A table back then it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't expensive. Maybe it was seventy five or eighty dollars okay. for a table. Um, and um, you know, because I remember I remember once it went up to a hundred. So I was I was you know, so you do that and yeah, you sell stuff, you buy stuff, and you could buy stuff. There would be um, people who like kind of you know dealers who could who could who would wholesale things and all right you make a couple hundred bucks as a kid it's a lot so yeah absolutely yeah. i mean like what was the most expensive individual book that you sold at that when i was that young yeah um i don't i don't know i mean i don't even remember but i know i had a um well spider-man 120 that's getting like hardcore geek but there's a spider-man 129 which is the first punisher but there was also a punisher magazine and you know uh, you, you'd have to get somebody to actually check so there was a punisher black and white magazine and Marvel premiere or something like that, mm. which I think came out before amazing Spider-Man 129, but was so like, and, and Punisher was like a new character that was getting hot at the time. Mm. Uh, it was still, a, it was a couple years after the original miniseries, but people wanted it. So I think there was a little bit of a debate what, um, what that, which was the first appearance. And even though most people thought, and today you say it was Spider-Man 129, there's this Punisher black and white magazine, which I think I, uh, I think, I think I bought it for $60 and sold it for $80 at the same show. So that would have been about as, as high as it goes. Most stuff, you know, you have a book that's 5 or $10. Like you said, I, I, I always had like a lot of McFarlane stuff. Uh, so I was able to, you know, that's kind of at a time, you know, you bought it for 75 cents. And then if you're selling them for 5 or 8 or 10 bucks, yeah, kind of kind of get rolling with that Yeah, stuff. you're playing the turn a dime into a house challenge. I don't know about that, but yeah. Well, I mean, you, you know, ended up getting a comic book shop, so. Yeah, but I, that, I didn't buy I didn't, the shop was going out of business when I bought it. So I, I've said this before on uh, Alex's, uh, Alex's, on Anthony's podcast. I, I bought half the store for the, you know, enormous investment of $6,250. So, yeah, it's and amazing. And in 19, I, like I said, it wasn't that long ago. So it wasn't even that much money back then. I know. It was, it was amazing to hear all of that when we spoke about, you know, your, your history with AR. Uh, there's a story that I heard uh, about the AR convention days. I may have to cut this, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I think there, I don't know what the issue was where you were there representing AR at one of the shows. It was a deadline you had missed, something. And the <laughs> excuse know, you gave. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know the, why you'd have to cut it. It was a great. Oh, all right. Great, it was a great. Well, I'll let you tell it then. on my feet. Are you talking, well, I mean, this, it's not even that good. I mean, it's probably told better if you know me and you're around the group of guys. But there was, and this was, this was definitely much later, but there was some convention and. Uh, like you said, you're supposed to give a deposit. Like we had to sign up for the table. I had done conventions there a million times before, but I didn't send a deposit. I was supposed to send a deposit or something else. And the guy was like really busting my ball. So, I mean, someone else probably tells a story to make me in a less uh, complimentary light. And I was like, why does this guy bust my balls? I've always done these shows. Uh, like there's obviously space. I'm sorry I didn't have the down payment, but I've been doing the shows for multiple times and everything else. And he's like, I said, oh, I'm sorry my mother died. Because <laughs> that's the story. That's the yeah, so I blamed it on my mother dying. Oh, I didn't even know. It's been a little bit crazy. <laughs> but my favorite yeah. part. And I just it was like totally like <laughs> totally psychopathic. <laughs> just oh, that's what happened. But my favorite part, and I, I did just hear that. I mean, I've heard yeah. it many times. But recently, yeah. uh, when our mutual friend Bill Maya was in town, and it was my, expeditious in my mind. But my favorite part was that they said to you like, well, like why? Or I don't know if they asked you. Or you just you just brought it up. You're like, um, as for why you didn't say it was like your grandmother or something more common. And you're like, well, everybody says that. Like this would be <laughs> this would be more striking. Yeah. Shows you how dishonest I can be. on, you know, at this drop of a hat. So that you better, is calculated. You be careful. Well, it, it actually wasn't calculated. That's the. It was you know it was reflexive, which is maybe worse. You know. So now, of course, you continue to attend shows, um, but right. in a different role as a creator. So I know the, mm -hmm. the goal is different now, right? So you're there to sell books, to connect with fans, to spread the word about your projects, to do interviews. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. All those things. It's, it's mostly to meet fans. And um, I still love doing shows. I mean, maybe some of that's nostalgia doing them since I was a little kid. But I love, I love going to shows. I still go to the dollar bin. So going to a show is almost an excuse to go to a show. You know what I mean? But it's mostly about, uh, you know, you make some money and that's good. I always kind of found it that, you know, I want to have, like, the, like I mean, this sounds like cavalier, but no, other like, a big reason I bring books just in case so someone can buy them, right? So, they, oh, I, they meet you, they want to have it, and they have the book. It's less about making money, actually. Right. So, like I said, I really wanted to talk about the, the journalism piece of, of comic convention. So, mm -hmm. for you, Alex, like, how many shows have you covered, either in person actually at the shows or writing, you know, pieces that based on information that uh, other reporters are sending in. Like how many shows have you covered for the beat? So I, I actually couldn't give you a solid number either now that I'm thinking about it um, because I never really kept track, but I you stopped I, at 200 as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the day that I actually hit 200 shows, man, I, 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 because of my day job and because of like the sort of like extent to which I can travel based upon my income, I, I actually don't cover a ton of shows. Um, the ones that I do go to are typically um, near Comic-Con in San Diego um, and uh, Mocha Fest, uh, as well as um, Comics Arts Brooklyn. I try to make it out to every show that's in New York City, at the very least. Um, and uh, outside of that, I have covered uh, New Jersey Comics Expo once, uh, and I've covered BookCon a few times as well. Um, is the beat covering those other shows, and it's just that you're not there? Or yeah, is, uh, yeah, yeah. We co we cover every show to some extent. I, Heidi tra Heidi's traveling a lot. Like she goes to all the big ones. She goes to Angoulême. She's going to be at Emerald City. Uh, she goes to C2E2. We have someone basically at every single show. Um, it's just a matter of who happens to be in the geographic area and who's accessible, because you know, like we're a relatively small outfit in terms of people. 
All right. But every show, I mean, there are quite, I mean, I don't even have a, a count offhand, but there, there's so many shows out there. Every major show. Let's, let, yeah. let me put a cap on that. We're not going to like the, we don't go to the little ones. Then. Right. Yeah. No, I was curious, like where the line is as far as like, where, like how small does the show have to be where you're like, well, that's not worth us covering. Like what needs to be there? Does there need to be some publisher presence or mm. creator presence? Like what is the the standard? Well, I would assume with a Comic-Con that you'd have to have a creator presence, right? There's no, there's no Comic-Con where there is zero creators. There were plenty back in the day. Yeah. But yeah. Um, but not in the modern era of shows, right? Because that's like a big, uh, that's like a big money bank for a lot of people who work in like comics and comics adjacent areas. Uh, but anyways, the, like, uh, I mean, no show is not worth covering, you know, like every show has something to report on if you want to go there. But, um, it's a matter of whether or not like, it's almost like audience expectation too, right? It's like, well, not to be mercenary about it, but are readers going to care about you know, some show in Dayton, Ohio. I don't know. You know? Well, I mean, but it's not, it's not even a matter of um, whether or not like news is coming out of the show or whatever, but it's a matter of whether or not there's a story to tell from the show, you know, because like, that's the point of journalist, what, journalism, right? Like you're here to like find a story and you're here to tell people about it. Like, um, so we, we have some people who do like con diaries and stuff like that, where they talk about their con experience and how the show went. Uh, one of the most popular, um, con features on the site is like probably the most voyeuristic. It's like the show's gone bad type mm. ones. The ones where like the the owner will like flake out and not pay the like people who do appear. Uh, guess what? We'll but not with, without hotel rooms, that sort of thing. Um, we've even covered uh, the Libya Comic Con where uh, they were raided by the government. Um, oh right, in right. the middle of the show and shut down. Um, but in a general sense, in terms of like what I cover, I tend to cover the major shows where I can interact with creators, where I can um, like break stories on like what the publishers are putting out, because that's what my primary interests are in. Right. Well, and I know, of course, you know, the, they're often these publisher panels and they're making, you know, announcements about upcoming projects and things like that. But and I, you'd be a great person to ask because I know in a, in a lot of cases, publishers are giving this information to sites ahead of time and then it runs after the official announcement, right? But then, I mean, like, how often are, are they truly breaking news at a panel like that? Uh, so you, you're talking about panels where, like, you're meeting, like, the creative team behind, like, say, like, the bat, like so, Batman sure, books yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Um, so uh, with stuff like, um, like Doomsday Clock, like, that rollout was very, very well coordinated. Like, we were getting assets very, like, pretty far ahead of time. Um, and they were, they were embargoes. There were things that we could run with it. We had, like, other, like, press photos and assets and that sort of thing. Um, and we typically have knowledge of the titles that publishers tend to announce, like, about a day or two ahead of time normally. Okay. Um, but uh, occasionally, I would say maybe, like, 30% of the time, like you get announcements at the show where they're legitimately breaking in and no one knew about it beforehand as well. Uh, we often get like press releases literally the second after um, a panel ends as well. Okay. And sometimes on the off chance that you have someone like a Frank Miller or something, they might announce something that they weren't supposed to announce like at all. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's as far as the whole breaking news aspect of this. And, you know, you talked about other sites that are out there as well. So, you know, there are all of these outlets that are, are going to be covering that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I'm curious about the, the kinds of things that you can cover that maybe other other sites are not doing, whether it's the con diaries or something like that. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I don't I don't know what I would say about that, actually, because like I feel like in terms of news stories, everyone is covering more or less the same thing. Um, at least in terms of what books are coming out. Right. 
if you're looking for stories from the con that other people aren't reporting, what you're looking for typically is what's happening on the show floor. Gotcha. Uh, like one of my favorite like um, con stories was when I was uh, interviewing um, Jason Howard, I think, the artist behind Trees at one of my very first New York Comic Cons that I was going to as a reporter. Um, in the middle of the interview, the the first uh, Deadpool war happened in Artist Alley. Do you remember those things? Yeah. Where like they literally have like a hundred Deadpool cosplayers come into the Artist Alley and just like have like a mini like combat session in the middle. Sometimes oh, okay. Rob Liefeld will come out and take a photo with them all. Um, but yeah, that, like stuff like that happens, and like because like Comic Con is like more than just a show, right? It's more than just a place for the industry to break news. It's a place that has its own culture. It has its own community. So like the fans themselves are making their own stories. Uh, I remember, I think two years ago, uh, when Age of Ultron had come out uh, at Co- New York Comic Con that year, there was a cosplayer who had uh, built Hulkbuster armor. Um, he like had built like this like giant fourteen foot Iron Man suit and was just walking around the con. So like, I hadn't actually seen it during the show, but I heard about it. So the day after, I got to call him and have like a miniature interview. That's very cool. Yeah. And I wanted to follow up because you mentioned Doomsday Clock. And if I'm not mistaken, there was a special press event at New York Comic Con last year um, specifically for Doomsday Clock, right? Was yeah, that's you, correct. You attended that? So yeah, what was, yeah. What was that like? Uh, so that was actually really, really cool. Um, I talked about it a little bit on the site, but basically what they did was that they uh, they brought us out to an art gallery near the Javits Center. Um, and they had decorated it in such a way where like the front door looked like... Um, night out the 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 floodgates to night owls like cave okay um and then inside you had the entire first issue of doomsday clock laid out in in inks um on like these giant like poster boards um and then uh we had like oderbs and we talked to people and then uh jeff johns came in and he basically narrated the entire first issue of doomsday clock to us because the inks didn't have the lettering there okay (laughs) <laughs> well, that must have been interesting. That was re- that was a lot of fun. They they definitely like rolled out the stops for that show. They actually did another press event um, in San Diego uh, before that as well, where they took us out on a boat, hmm. and we talked about the series there a little bit. So I wonder, away from prying uh, ears and eyes, right? Well, do you remember that part Secret of Watchmen boat. where they take all the artists out on the boat and then they blow them up? Oh no 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 no! That's that's, that's what I was thinking example. of the whole time. Uh, that is funny. So like some an event like that, a press type event versus just a general panel that any attendee can can go to. I mean, how if at all do you find the messaging is different from the publishers? Like when they're just talking to the press. Okay, so um, I think that they tend to be a little bit um, like looser and more conversational in uh, in events with the press because panels in particular, the fan based ones, those are very very uh, much about getting the crowd excited. They're very much like an aspect of entertainment mm-hmm. as much as they are about news. Um, you get a lot less of the the fanfare and the hype building at these like press only events. They're a lot more about inside baseball type things, basically like what the, what the journalists and what they're interested in talking about. Uh, so we get in more into like the background of the story. We get into like why they're doing X, Y, and Z. Um, but simultaneously, like in the end, they do have a certain set of talking points that they tend to adhere to. Uh, if you're not like pointedly asking them something different. Right. And then, so again, I want to jump back to the creator perspective here. And uh, again, as someone who's interviewed at these shows, I mean, do you do interviews a lot at these shows, Brandon? Yeah. Cause it, cause I think um, news sites and, and, and podcasts and YouTube channels and whatnot, you know, it's a probably, you know, especially some, I don't want to say the amateur, but they're not as established. So probably their only chance to get 
access to people. So I'll go to show and I'll see if I can get 10 or 20 quick interviews. So I, I always try to say yes. And it's mostly just people coming up to you. Do they set these up ahead of time? Do they just show sometimes, up? Yes, yeah, sometimes they do. And, it almost, and, I, and I hate to say it, it almost makes no difference whether you set it up. <laughs> or, I mean, you know, part of that is because I don't have a million to do. But some of it's like, well, everything's kind of play by ear. So, um, right. Like know, even if you say yes to someone ahead of time, it's still not an absolute guarantee because yeah, you don't know what the show is yeah, going to be like. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you, you know, it's pretty standard, like, Hey, come towards the end of the show. And as long as I can, you know, manage it, I'm, I'm happy to. So, and as far as obviously you write for Marvel, you do Moon Girl right. and Double Dinosaur. How much stuff are they setting up for you? Not so much at shows. At shows, the Marvel requirements are panels. Uh, they want you to, you know, not they want you to, but if you're available to, they'd love to have you at booth to do kind of booth stuff. Uh, and they usually actually do a couple of, you know, they have their, I, I don't know if it's, I mean, maybe even Alex knows. I've participated in a lot, but I'm always at the show, so I don't know how it gets to the fans. But I think they basically do live content, streaming content throughout the show. I mean, you know, cause it's, so you go up to that, mar- they always have like a booth someplace yeah. and like, oh, okay, you're waiting, you're after this guy and wait, and then you just go on. Yeah, that's I'm pretty that, sure that's live. That's right? ba- yeah, that's the basic yeah. that works. And so, so there's a lot of that stuff for Marvel. And by a lot, you know, maybe you'll do, you know, four things over a three day show for for that type of stuff. Um, they'll also, um, you know, th- you know, throughout the year, without conventions, they'll say, oh, this person wants to interview you. Uh, they do a lot of their own content now for for Marvel.com. Can you answer a few questions? Can you say a few cool things? But uh, at the show, it's mostly, um, like I said, get on the panel, and then you're, you know. If you're on a panel, you're usually on a panel with at least three or four other people. Sometimes it's eight or nine. So, mm-hmm. you know, you get two questions and you pretty much roll with the rest of it. Yeah, the, the, right. the Marvel and the DC live streaming stuff is actually a pretty interesting, like, new offshoot of, like, comics journalism type things. Because, like, I don't think that existed prior to a few years ago. But now more and more, you, you, they are, like, actively producing their own stories and their own interviews. Uh, throughout the year and at shows. Yeah, I was wondering about that, where where panels are available to view, whether it's a live stream or, you know, they, they post it after, whatever it might be. Is there still a need for a written panel report in a case like that? Um, well, I would say yes. Uh, I mean, it really depends on the kind of person that you are. I know that, that I know that a lot of people actually like watching these panels, like, uh, like live or even after the fact, but, like, uh, I'm very much, like, a person who is like super time sensitive. Like if I can avoid having to watch a video about a one hour panel, I will do it, which right. is why I think that text uh, summaries are important. Yeah. Agreed. And, um, no, I mean, that makes sense. Well, it's fine. Speaking of panel, panel recaps. So my one time comics journalism experience was at San Diego comic con two years ago where I met you, Alex, even though you had no recollection of this, but it's okay. It's funny. Big, Cause big timed. I, I know. Little. I know, because before you got here, I was like, yeah, I only met Alex once at, at Comic-Con. And then you got here, you're like, hey, it's nice to meet you in person. I was like, oh, man. Well, I think we, we, we probably only had a brief interaction. It was right? really like, brief. Okay, I hope we didn't like have drinks and then I no, forgot no, no. about it, because that, that would make me very sad. It was at one of the hotel bars where the creators hang out after hours. Oh, okay, right. Uh, which is kind of cool. I want to maybe jump back to that. But, um, but that was my one-time comics journalism experience. I went for Bleeding Cool, so I got a ticket. I went, and I mostly was covering panels. Uh, and it was interesting. I enjoyed some more than others. Um, obviously, Bleeding Cool, you know, they have a specific mission. I mean, panel recaps and cosplay photos, that's a big thing. The other major piece is it is, even by its own description, you know, a, a comic gossip site. So there's 
often that push for reporters to kind of like get some scoop and, and things like that. Uh, I, th- I think I failed at that respect. I mostly focused on the, um, you know, the, the panel reports, but kind of on that note of bleeding cool or just the, the other reporters out there in general, like what is that community of comics journalists? Like, is it competition friendliness? Does it depend? I think it really depends, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's sort of like anything, you know, like I, I don't assume that every creator is friends with every single other creator in the world. Um, right. And the same thing with, with journalists, like you find, you find the people whose work you like, you meet them, you say, Hey, I really love your work. And then you're like, Hey, you want to grab a beer? Like it's, it's pretty, you know, fast and loose. I mean, there's certain things that you can't tell your competition, obviously, because you don't want to scoop one another. Right. Uh, but if it's between, but if like it's between friends, then yeah, you'll tell each other things that you heard or whatever. I would imagine that's probably you know really on display at something like one of those doomsday clock press events when it's just press in a room like that. Uh, actually, well, less so because you're getting the same information. Like everyone's getting the same feel from like Jeff right. Johns or whatever. Well, that's true. I meant more like just like talking shop and things like that. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 sure, absolutely. Yeah, there wasn't there was a reception period before cool. we went into the whole thing. Yeah. So, who are some other comics journalists, either who you admire and or that you've actually met and and become friends with? Uh, so Graham, who writes for the Hollywood Reporter, is like one of my favorites because he's like, have you, have you ever like listened to him talk? Um, he covers uh, a lot of DC stuff, uh, and he has this like wonderful like speaking cadence. He's just so energetic. He hosts uh, a podcast as well about comics. Uh, I think it's called So What. Um, and I just I really really enjoy his writing style. I think that he has a lot of like good stuff to say. He has a sort of like great insight when he's like speaking to creators. Like there's a reason why he's at the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, I also really like Meg Downey, who's um, been doing a lot of work with CBR. She did some work with DC Comics directly. Uh, she is, like, branded as, like, the historian of comics. She's really interested in, like, talking about, like, uh, the, like, history of, like, certain characters. She does. She goes into, like, big, long rants about Captain America and, like, over time because she's been reading all of the Captain American comics from the beginning. Uh, she even hosted uh, the Delancey Street uh, Jack Kirby panel at New York Comic Con oh, with you, yeah. I think. Yeah, me and Tom Brevoort and some podcast dude. How'd that go? Went went well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it was it was an interesting panel in the sense of it was less. These are always become freewheeling, you know. This was like there was an agenda, and it wasn't even her because she was like like the like there was a guy who did like the Bowery Boys podcast. Mm. I think Axel was supposed to show up and he didn't show up, and then me and Tom Brevoort and. Um, but the guy like there was like oh these are the questions and this is what we're going to talk about. There was almost like. Um, you know, an outline for the, unbeknownst to me and, and Tom Brevoort, like, the, like I said, the Bowery Boys guy, who wasn't even, mo- and the moderator too, was, it was like I said, it was just like, he, he kind of had an agenda, and I think he mm-hmm. set up the panel, and uh, so it was kind of like, hey, let's, like, let's hit all these bases, and mm-hmm. so. Yeah, also, um, I really, really love the work of like Steve Morris. Um, he used to actually be the managing editor of The Beat before me, um, but he's since moved on to do stuff with CBR, and he is one of the, uh, co-runners of the MNT, which is like a comics uh, newsletter um, that come up, that comes out every month. He has this great insight for um, like comics in general. He has a great perspective on the industry. Uh, he's been, he runs this thing called Shelf Dust where he, where he like reviews and goes over like single issues of comics. Right now he's working on an annotated version of Giant Days, which is like so far up my alley because that's one of my favorite books out there right now. I met Steve Morris once, and I said I was a fan of his. He goes, no, I'm not that Steve Morris, because I guess there's another Steve Morris in comics who maybe is a creator. Maybe, you know, I said I'd never heard of it, but 
I didn't realize I said, I said, well, Steve neither Morris. did I. I said, no, I mean, oh, you're not the guy from the beat. And there's uh, oh, he goes, oh, that's me. He's English, right? Or yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, was kind of, he was kind of blown away that I was a fan of him. He's very good. <laughs> he is. He's fantastic. Yeah. He's one of the best out there, I, I think. I mean, I, I, I'm genuinely a fan of whenever I'd see his byline. Yeah. Well, um, Alex, I mean, like now you've been doing this for a little while. Do you have people coming up to you saying, hey, I really like what you do. Can can you tell me about, you know, the comics industry or the beat or things like that? Yeah, yeah. I have some people who do that. And I'm like more than happy to help anyone who does. Um, I think like the big thing for me is that I I tend to interact more on the creator side than the journal than like the journalism side more because like I'm, I'm I have an interest in like doing interviews primarily. Like I like having these conversations about the works themselves more than I do like proper journalism per se, I guess, you know, cause like my, my thing is not about like breaking news more than it's about doing deep depths into books. Right. Uh, I come from like a academic background and it's sort of like infected the way that I do everything. Like I don't go for what's hot. I go for what I'm excited about at the current second, which could be something from now. It could be something from like 20 years ago. And then, so for you, Brandon, jumping back to your experience as a creator being interviewed. So again, you know, you have people coming up to you at these shows, either they've set it up ahead of time or they just come up to your table. Mm-hmm. Do you do any kind of, of vetting or are you happy to, to talk to anybody who comes up? No, yeah, I don't. I, I mean, obviously you eyeball the people and I, there may, you know, there may have been a situation where I was like, oh, I'm too busy if it was a little bit too much but like when you say all right so when you say too much like what what would it have to be for you to be like uh it would be it would be, it, like i said I, it would be a lot you know it would be like sometimes a little too pushy or that they didn't really and it's not even that i care that they didn't read the book but when they don't know the book and then pretend that they know the book um it, that has sometimes just been really awkward so i so i so i try i tend not to you know be too responsive and then they just kind of move down how can they the t- how can how can you tell well yeah i mean because it's just it's like it's like this floundering and like i said it makes me sound like oh you didn't read my book i don't care it's like i don't if you said hey i've never read your book but i'm here to pick up interviews you want to talk about it i'd be that's totally more of the the deception yeah. aspect of it it's, yeah but it's not even the deception it's just it's the recipe for disaster because like what's this guy gonna start asking questions about a book and then here i am on tape and it's gonna be on you know i'm sure only nine people on youtube are gonna watch it but still it's like uh, it's you know sure because if you know that he hasn't read the book in the meantime you can give him the sales pitch kind of thing whereas but it, it's not even that it's just like i said it's it's like it really isn't even the deception, even that Anthony's saying. It's like, well, what kind of person is it so important to them to just get somebody that they're just going to start? Like, you know what I mean? It's like, right, know, right, right. It's like, hey, that, that sounds like something crazy is going to happen. So, yeah, uh, you know, and that's really that's really infrequent. I can remember it a couple of times, though. But it seems to be more common than like. I think that that I think it should be because like I people seem to be wary of this when I talk to PR people. Like they they seem to they indicate to me that like they're worried that people will have not read the book. And I'm just like, this, how can you do this? Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. So, right. I asked you, Brandon, about, do you vet the people who come to you? Mm-hmm. And then, so for you, as you're re- reaching out to creators or PR people, I mean, to what extent and how do they vet you? Um, I don't think I've ever been vetted. I mean, not maybe not in the, in the literal sense. And obviously they know you oh, no, with, actually, the, with there, the beat. There's, there's, there's actually, uh, there's actually a dossier on me somewhere. Uh, I'm not going to go into more <laughs> to that, but other than, but, um, yeah, so I, I think that uh, being at the beat, you know, it comes with a certain like expectation of quality. Right. Um, like I think that's one of the biggest benefits of being with like a larger outlet. Uh, you don't have to really prove yourself because by nature of you being there, you sort of have already done that. Right. Um, but more than that, um, you know, like I think that over time, um, you develop relationships with people, uh, like at these companies, and they sort of know who you are. So they're the, they're the ones actually like pitching you at some point. 
Um, like I get a lot of pitches for interviews and stuff like that from different PR people from different companies. Um, different podcast hosts. Different podcast hosts. I bugged him a bunch of times. Yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's different. I will say uh, one thing. Um, if if somebody's really specifically coming to talk about Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, which is perfectly legitimate, but not like, oh, what's your view on comics? What what do you like? And then maybe there's a few Moon Girl questions, right? If they're like, oh, I want to talk about Moon Girl and you know how you make it or why you make it or how long it's been going on. If, if any of that ever comes through, it's it's not, at a convention. It's tough because they're going to probably record it and run with it. But if that comes, if there's any way I can loop in the Marvel publicity department, I always do. Yeah, I think that's been a big thing, especially with the big two creators um, in like the recent past. Like they're they're really really interested in making sure that their PR companies are looped in on the conversations that are happening. Right. Which sucks for us, but better well, for the companies. How, why? Well, because I mean, they're doing it because they don't want, they want to make sure that no news breaks unintentionally from these interviews. Like obviously, you have the we don't want you saying anything racist on tape. Right. Uh, kind of stuff, but you also have the we don't want you indicating what the new storylines are going to be or like accidentally dropping like a spoiler for your book because um, there are a lot of creators who really really love talking about their stuff and they get excited and then they talk about things that haven't happened yet. Right. Well, so all right. So when like Marvel PR gets involved, what form does that take? Are they then do like are they the go between? Are they you know uh, you, reviewing the questions ahead of time? Like, what? How does that go? You know, honestly, I have I haven't actually done a lot of like interview work directly with Marvel um, because they're they're like their PR company, their PR side of things is like relatively small, um, and like also my personal interests just don't tend to drift in that direction for the majority of the time. Um, and the interest that it does, and to the extent that it does, you know, with stuff like Moon Girl Love Dinosaur, like I I know Brandon, right. Uh, and I hope he knows that I'm not going to say anything that's going to get him in trouble. Yeah, like you said, some of it's just kind of technical. Some of it's, um, you know, it, it's it's. I don't at all look at it as any kind of burden on me because I'm working. You know, it, it's it's a lot of it. It's working for Marvel. I mean, obviously, you're a freelancer. You're not an employee. You're your own person, so you can participate how you want to participate. But I find, hey, this is Marvel's book, and if, if they want to kind of control certain things, and it's it's sometimes it's it's a lot more subtle then, oh, don't say this specific thing or that specific thing. It's just like, hey, they, you know, you want them to kind of be on board, even on a small book. Like, and Moon Girl's a small book in, in, a, in a sense of like the monthly market where everything's geared towards, but it also is important because it does different things. And, and you almost don't want to interfere with, you know, they kind of have an idea of it. And if all of a sudden you're saying stuff that's not kind of in their plan, does it mess up their plan? Even if it's just a little bit, does it take them off? It's, it's something that they got to think about. So now they got to think about, that interview you did rather than the interview that would actually really help. And we'll put you in that. And that's some of it too. So if you want to do interviews, we don't want you doing interviews all day long because it gets repetitive because of all the, this other and the other reason then also, Hey, you should be writing. So you don't want to do it. So it's like, Oh, like we'll, we'll coordinate where it matters the most. And there's going to be the venues that are going to make a difference for your book. And you know, I, I appreciate it. And with that, it's, it's like, yeah, talk about the book. Don't, process to an extent, but even not that. It's like, hey, answer questions about stories. Don't ask, answer questions about uh, all this other stuff. Like, and, and so, you know, it's not a problem for me because if I want to talk about Rocket Girl, I can talk about Rocket Girl and do whatever I want. If I want to talk about comic shops, I can, I can, I have, I have a platform to do that, whether it was talking to Anthony, whether it was on, you know, Podcorn. So it, it, it's never been a big deal to me, but it's like anything else. If, if it's somebody that they've worked with a lot, they probably are only keeping one eye on it to make sure it's okay. If it's somebody they've never heard of, maybe they're saying, well, what's their website? What are they trying to do? Yeah. 
Right. And but then like, are they asking those questions to you? Are they dealing with the outlet directly? um, It's like I said, it it comes in all styles. Sometimes Marvel is sending me the interview and saying, we, you know, this person, excuse me, this person's interviewing you. Um, Go ahead. Sometimes I get the request and I, and I try to honor all requests and I say, okay, well, I'll just, this is great. I'm going to answer, but I also, you know, Marvel wants to be on this stuff. So I'm going to loop in person X or person Y. And, um, yeah, they, they, they usually, um, they, they, you know, they're looking at the questions. They usually say, Hey, just, and most interviewers will say, Hey, I'll show it to you before, you know, cause you're, cause maybe you're talking on the phone. So I'll type it up and then show it to you. If you want to, if you left anything out of there, anything you wouldn't want to say, it's pretty casual. It's not like, you know, you're not, it's not like, uh, Woodward and Bernstein where it's like, Oh, you said that and now <laughs> it's on the record. And I'm going to print it. You know what I mean? They're like, here, here's your interview about making comic books is, you know, cause maybe you said something, maybe you made like a stupid mistake and you miscredited somebody or you forgot that something and right. you can kind of go back in and clean it up. Do you make that offer to creators you interview Alex? Mm, actually not usually. Do they, do they ever ask to see it? Yeah. Well, I mean, if someone directly asks, then I, generally speaking, I will honor that. Um, and like, if they're like, genuine like factual errors then like that's stuff that like i will correct um but like other than that like i typically don't tend to like edit things out unless like there is like a very very sort of like direct and firm request that we not talk about something specific uh from like a publisher right it's funny for all the podcast episodes i've only had one one guest one of the comic shops ask to hear the episode ahead of time i mean obviously they heard the episode as we were recording it but there was one thing that i guess they were kind of unsure how it was going to play or sound in the finished product and it was a little bit of a debate for myself because I, I don't want to run into the situation where I'm sending them the, ep- the episode and then they're like, hey, can you cut this out? And it's like, well, you know, again, I make that offer to the guests when we sit down, but it's like when I'm once I'm ready to go, like that's kind of it. But I, 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 mean, I did is, grant that you know, and it was is, fine. Yeah, this is sort of a tricky if, issue to navigate because like um, to some extent what's on the record is on the record. Um, and like if you were in the business of news and you were in the business of breaking stories, but like simultaneously, like these companies are like, to some extent, like in the end, like comics journalism is also like a balance between journalism and PR. Um, in the sense that like you are essentially reporting about stuff that people are going to end up buying. And so in that sense that all comics journalism is like marketing in some way. That's interesting. Yeah, that was something that I kind of thought about. And even in the context of, you know, of a convention where, you know, maybe there's not so much news to break if things are already set up ahead of time and you have all these other outlets there. So, um, you know, I guess just trying to find like those other those other angles, like things that you're covering that are you know going to speak to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that makes sense. Uh, so, Brandon, for as far as being interviewed, uh, I mean, do you enjoy it generally? Like, do you, are you excited talking about the? I mean, does it get repetitive, though, when you get the same stuff? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I always enjoyed going in sometimes, you know, I, what I've stopped doing is trying to come up with a different answer for the same question, you know? Um, hmm, okay. You know, I mean, you know, yeah. not because there's one question and one answer, but I probably have like two or three answers for any kind of basic question. Oh, what was your inspiration to me? Uh, okay, so I'll, I'll pick one of the three that I've answered. And maybe like I said, if something new occurs to me, I'll do it. But it used to be like, oh, I said that already. Let me stall for time, change the subject a little bit and say something. And then it just becomes when you've been working on a book for three years, Moon Girl, it becomes a little. I mean, this is when you've been working in this business so long. What's the first comic book you read? This is the thing that creators like grasp about the most, like because they get the same set of like five or six questions every single interview. And it gets to be a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess. I mean, I don't mind doing it. You know what I mean? It's, you know, I, I appreciate 
somebody who takes an interest. So it's I get the same question fifty times sitting at the table. You know, what's Rocket sure. Girl about? How many how many different ways am I going to say it? It it, it becomes a, a couple of lines. You know. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's funny. So I mean, I encountered this when I was promoting the Kickstarter. You know, last year, and I, I did a bunch of interviews, and it was great. And it was a similar type of thing where I would try to come up with a different way to answer those same like few questions, like why comic shops? What was your first? You know, like that 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 kind of stuff. And yeah, I think there is that line to walk because you want it, you want to keep it fresh for yourself and the person you're talking to and the people who are going to be reading it. But at the same time, you could be reaching someone for the first time. Yeah, I think I think I had a misconception that like, oh, he's asking that question. He doesn't know that this other person asked me it. So everyone who's listening or reading his stuff is going to know that answer. Like, exactly. No, it's going right. to be totally a new audience. It's his audience or her audience. And so, yeah, answer the question because like, like Anthony was before I cut him off saying somebody's first time hearing about why you know i named her every issue Luna is someone's Lafayette. first issue to an extent yeah and then you know it's 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 all you know it's all at the end of the day some kind of shade of gray right you two mm. are younger than me but uh a little bit like oh it's all or nothing it's like this or that's like, yeah, like i said i'll you know good interview a bad interview kind of try to get a couple of questions try to put a new spin even if it's only one of the five or six questions if you get a new spin then it's kind of a, a victory but just be asked. It's like it's nice and it's cool. So I'm I'm happy to do it and mm-hmm. helps them. It helps me. It helps whoever's listening. It's part of the community. I I, I that's why I'm in comics. You know, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, especially with con interviews. Like get it. Like when these people are doing like seven or eight interviews in a row. Like you really just like if you get one, you answer out of them. It's sort of like a victory. Right. I will say I wish people were a little bit more commando. So if you're a you know a, a, a convention interviewer. You got to like learn to be a little bit more commander because they all want to like set up and they want to set up the camera and they want to come around like hey man you know throw a tape recorder on the uh, on the table ask a few questions and and like I said not because I said it's it is unnecessary like I said I'm sure everyone wants it to be as nice and as perfect as possible but maybe that's not the place you can do it at a convention and maybe I have the time but if you want somebody who's a little busier. You're not going to be able to do all that, so it would be, it would be a good habit to learn to just kind of like, hey, uh, you know, here's a couple of questions, and then run away with it. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I mean, it really depends on what your assets are and what your ability is. You know, yeah. like I think like you in general tend to lean a little bit more punk rock. But I'm saying, yeah, what I'm saying. But if you're a reporter and you can, like I said, yeah, if that, if that was your thing, that hey, I'm I'm in and out of there really quick, and I'm not, you know what I mean? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. want you want to sell a comic while I'm in the middle of it? Yeah, that'll be part of the that'll be part of the experience if you can. You know, right? Yeah. No, I think yeah. that makes sense. That would be a, that would be a good hook. I know that PW tends to do that. They have a lot of show floor interviews with creators. Yeah. Um, and Alex, so who are some of the other creators you've interviewed on a on a convention floor or an artist alley, something like that? You know, I I actually don't tend to do a lot of artist alley interviews in particular, just because the 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 times that I've done them, I have never really loved them doing them because like the the hard thing about doing an artist alley interview is that. Uh, you're not, you don't have like the full undivided attention of like a creator because there's no way. Like, you're, you have hundreds and hundreds of people milling about you at any given time. So, like, you really and just it's have tiring. to. tiring. Sort of, like, like, conventions are exhausting. So, yeah. you, you never get somebody sharp yeah. on a convention floor interview. You, you, their their questions are coming at a rapid clip. They're giving you abbreviated answers. And, like, it's not, it's not their fault at all. Like, it's just the nature of the thing. Like, it's a very manic period. Um, you know, it's a little bit easier when you block things out. I know that, um, Karen Gillan and Jane McKelvey, the people behind Book and Divine, they're pretty good about it in particular because they they like schedule out the times that they're at their table and the times that they're signing, the times that they're not. So even though uh, 
at the last New York Comic Con, when I did go to interview them at their table in Artist Alley, they were turning away people while we were talking. Um, and there were still some interruptions, but it wasn't like as long or like uncomfortable as it can be when you're interviewing creators like impromptu. Um, I like talking to people uh, at like booths, um, like when you have like segre segregated spaces, like right. between like the fans and you and the creator. Like I know that like DC in particular is pretty good about doing that. They like in San Diego they have like a skybox, so you go up to like a second floor of their booth to interview people. Um, and in New York they have like a little like cornered off area. Um, I don't those those interviews don't tend to I've be my favorite. I've participated in a lot of different ways, either as the DC staff guy or as a person being interviewed or whatever. The the convention closet interview yeah, that's yeah, something yeah. too, like where you're inside the booth, like background. There's usually there's usually like a, like a little room for like coats and stuff. Like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Where they keep the bottles of water and like, oh, we're gonna interview you. Meet in the booth. Yeah, come in here. And it's like you know, like you think it's gonna be quiet, but someone's like, oh, I need the pins to give away. I need the vertigo pins. Give me a bag. You know, oh, that's pretty fun. No, I didn't even know about those. No, those are like so. You know, we said uh, that's those are a lot of conventions going, a lot of uh, interviews going on inside the booth mm. backdrops. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, so in that case, then, like for you, Alex, would it is it, there a greater value for you as just as far as networking rather than trying to conduct interviews on the floor, like getting your face in front of these people and maybe setting up something for down the line, or no? I wouldn't even call it networking per se. Like, I would like the way that I would call it is that. It's sort of like an abbreviated version of what I would do otherwise. Like, I these interviews, like like I was saying, they're, they're not my favorite because like I don't feel like I can dive as deep into a book as I would like to because that's like typically my thing. Like, I'm not here to get like the spin or like get the concept from you. I'm here to like talk about why you made X choice on X page. Um, but like, um, I, they are fun in the sense that you know you do get to actually interact with these people in real life and you get a little bit more of their character on paper than you would otherwise, like if you were doing it over Skype or over email. Um, so you get a better sense of who these people are. And that's like a fun thing for me. Um, and yeah, and then sometimes they, they, do, they can lead to like things like later on down the road. Um, and like sometimes, especially with like people that you can't get a hold of like very easily. Otherwise, like Scott Snyder, like it's a, it's a good time to get your thing right. in. I will say the, the overwhelming majority of impromptu Requests. It's always like a video element, right? So it's going on YouTube, I'm assuming, or, or something like that. And I think a big part of it is is from the floor. You know what I mean? It's so as much as they're interviewing you as a creator, they're also interviewing you at Comic Con, right? So it's it's kind of a, a double win for their viewers, right? It's like oh, like it's it's like you're it's like you're at the con. So right. I, I mean, I think mm. a lot of people take advantage of that. But when you're working for the beat and it's like, Oh, that's you know, kind of like the, not necessarily that they, that they do long form, but a little bit more of a sober and measured approach to everything. You're kind of grabbing stuff in a chaotic environment to place in a very, um, austere uh, environment. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting yeah. it because like, I, I, you know, a lot of these show interviews are tend to be for, you know, entertainment purposes, I think. Um, but like, that's not what, I, that's not what people, that's not what I at least tend to do. Um, because I'm not, I'm not much of an entertainer, to be quite frank. I'm a nerd. I'm a, I'm a huge nerd. Yeah, like Comic Verse is cool because they come in their red T-shirts. They give you the coffee mug. Yeah, yeah, oh, they're, they're, uh, yeah, they're very on about it. I know that um, Albert from CBR did a great interview with one of the kids from Stranger Things, just live on the floor hmm. at uh, New York. Oh, neat. In terms of the organization of a show, just the running of it, from the creator perspective and the journalist perspective, like what are some of the things that can make for a very 
successful, enjoyable uh, experience for you? Like you mentioned, like the skybox or a separate area to do interviews, like things like that. Um, hmm. So I've only ever, I, I don't, actually, I don't, I've never done a skybox interview. Uh, I've only been up to the skybox in New York once. Um, I think that the thing that tends to be the best for me in terms of show interviews is like if there is like a space somewhere um, that we can go to to talk in private. Like um, I remember in particular when I interviewed Justin Jordan uh, in Comic-Con 2015 in New York, uh, we went to this like sort of like offhanded hallway in Artist Alley where no one else was watching. Uh, and that was nice because it meant that I could get like uninterrupted one-on-one -on -one time with them and like do the sort of thing that I do. Um, other than that, like, I'm not really particularly picky. Like I'm willing to work with whatever I've been given, you know, like as long as the environment itself is not like creepy and like dingy, then right. like, I'm pretty good. What about any other stuff? Like I know San Diego comic-con, I know cause I was in there, they have the separate press room, like something sure. like that. Does that make for a better experience? Uh, oh, okay. Okay. So yeah, the, the press rooms are, the press rooms are really, really great when they exist. Uh, New York and San Diego both have them. And, um, San Diego's in particular, I really, really enjoy because they actually give you Wi-Fi. Yes. Um, which means that you can actually work on things when you're there. Uh, New York, it varies from year to year. Um, and uh, the one thing that San Diego does that like I've never seen any other show do uh, is that they actually give you snacks. Yes. Uh, which is great because con food is really, really expensive and I cannot afford to eat that well. That food goes very quickly. It does. It does. But it is, a, it is nice to have that. Yeah. The pretzels. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, the, the soft pretzels. Pretzels. Do they really have pretzels? I don't remember that. I remember I the nachos. I got there too late and they were gone. Maybe. I, I, I just remember, I remember very clearly, like, we got the sort of, like, monkey's paw wish version of that at New York Comic Con last year, where, like, we just had, like, Doritos promoting something, so we just had bags and bags of Doritos everywhere. Gotcha. So, like, I wasn't hungry, but, like, I wasn't happy. Right, right. But no, it's true. I mean, like something like that can make a big difference. I know I, I had a better experience a couple of years ago as as the reporter for Bleeding Cool than I did the, the couple of years prior when I went, just because at least I had a base of operations. I had a place I could go and sit and write and, and have the Wi-Fi and have some snacks because, yeah, it's nice to not have to buy every single thing that you have there. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, you still end up buying the, the $5 convention coffee or oh, whatever. Sure. But like, you know, you, you got to make concessions in the end. Although that is the one thing that, that most cons tend to be good about. Most cons tend to give you some sort of coffee at some point. Yeah. And then, so Brandon, from the creator perspective, whether it's related to interviews or not, but I mean, like when you go to a show, what, you know, what tends to, what are the things that you look for um, in terms of the way it's, it's run that make you say, okay, like this is going to be worthwhile for me? Yeah, it's, 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 it's becoming, um, like I said, I love to do shows, I, I, you know, if, 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 if I could, I would not be bored by doing a show every week. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard to, like I said, they, they, they take you away from your family. They obviously take you away from, from work. You, you lose a day traveling, maybe traveling back and all that other stuff. So it's, it's, it is a big deal to do shows, especially shows that are now every show is three days, right? Or it's four days if it's not three days. Um, it's, it's shows have to do more for even somebody like me. And I imagine the bigger the name, the more you have to do where it's like, yeah, I mean, there's the obvious things like, you know, paying for travel and paying for a hotel, a lot of places now, it's like if it's a new show for sure, and I think all but one show, like I said, you know, is is kind enough to pay pay a per diem because, like I said, you're always taking money out of pocket. I got to take a cab. I got to go to expensive, uh, you know, uh, lunch. Not that not that it's too expensive that you can't afford it, but you're coming, you're at the show, you really are kind of inconvenienced. It's it's the show. To me, when you 
take care of all of that stuff. You show that you get it and you understand that it's a big deal for the creators to come there. And it's also a great opportunity. And you try to repay that by always being at your table or being at your table a lot, being obviously nice to the fans and signing everything that they want you to sign, uh, participating on panels and all that other stuff. But yeah, it, it's become, there's so many shows and they're all multiple days that you really have to, as you know, as, as simple, simplistic as it sounds, you have to take care of, of the creators. And like I said, yeah, make sure, like I said, if they're coming, you're, you're paying for them to come there and they're, and they're not going steerage, right? It's not like, oh, I'll give you a, you know, a coach flight with two stops and you know, maybe show up there. It's like, you know, getting a little too old for that. So. Yeah, what's, what's the point of going to a show if they're not going to feed you Nobu? Well, yeah, exactly. I don't, exactly, I don't know if it has to be necessarily, well, that would be nice. Nobu would be nice. <laughs> See, now you're thinking about that miso cut. Well, you got to get there, and it's like it's like sometimes I travel for work also, and it's the same thing. It's like if you want me to come out to, you know, Culver City for uh, three days, it's like, well, it's like, I got to get there. You want me to be able to actually perform to a certain extent, you know what I mean? So if I'm right. coming there on a terrible flight, I, say, I mean, I won't even do it, but because you can always say no. But I think conventions, it, it really is as as um, as mercenary as it sounds. Like oh, accommodations have to be. Pretty much there. And then if you're an established show, I guess it's easy enough to find out, well, how many people show up? Do people do well at that show? Is that the type of show that's going to be a good experience for me? Am I going to meet different kinds of fans because I haven't been in that area before? But, yeah, it's, it's really just basic stuff. Um, and, you know, once the show starts, um, there's almost never enough people around, at least people who don't know what to do to, to fix a problem or solve anything like that. So... You know, you just you just gonna kind of have to be on top of it and and managing guests. Uh, I think a lot of places are doing it well and know how to do it because they were forced to do it. Even if you know whether you're getting, uh, you know, uh, Chris Evans or you're getting the dude who played somebody on Battlestar Galactica in 1977. There's a certain Hollywood element to it where those people have to be treated a certain way. So I think it got into the mind mm. of a lot of shows now that was like. You know, we also have comic creators that have to that need these things. So make sure there's somebody who can get them what they need, who can you know cover for them and tables. So the simple stuff like that, which wasn't always a lock, has has worked, been worked into their mental programming now. Right. Where most shows are doing, at least most big shows are, and and, and certainly, you know, and like I said, I'll do a little show, but you know, it, it has to be worth it. And it's not the luxury; it's just that you know, I don't I don't want to be dragged around. To, well, the thing the thing is, in the end, that like you perform multiple roles at a show. Like while you are there to sell things and to like meet fans and stuff like that, you are also there to perform to some extent, like you said. I, you know? I think so. I think you sell tickets. I mean, obviously people want to see creators. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you're on a how to break into comics panel or here's what I do for your own fans or general fans, I try to do it. Um, I love, I mean, I love that type of stuff. And as a writer, I have a lot of, you know, I have maybe more time than an artist. An artist might be so oh, I have I'm sketching, I'm, I'm, I'm doing stuff, but right. um, I, not only do I want to be on panels, I'll moderate panels. I did that at uh, East Coast Comic Con. I moderated the. Um, I almost insisted. It's like, oh, yeah. I can, um, there's a there was the thirtieth anniversary of um, Craven's Last Hunt, hmm. and they had like the entire creative team there. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, like cool. you know, the, like from the colorist to the editor to the inker, and obviously the penciler and, and writer. And it's like, oh, I, I, I want to, uh, you know. So maybe I was yeah. a journalist. I, I moderated that. Yeah, panel. there you go. Yet another hat for Brandon Montclair. Yeah. I think it's a lot like uh, it's like. It's and I like, did it the right way. Like I said, I said almost nothing. Booking a creative is kind of like uh, booking a uh, 
like someone for a Vegas residency. You know, you got to get them the the room. You got to give them a massage or something like that. Yeah. So is that how it generally works? Like they fly you out, they put you up, they give you space at the, like a table at the show. Yeah, it evolves. First, it's like you know, I'll pay my own way and I'll buy my own table, but at least I get put in the program. I mean, I was never really at that stage. Um, but you know, people do, they, maybe they buy an artist alley table cause they're, yeah. they're young and doing everything else. Uh, then it becomes, I think the free table cause that's the easiest thing for someone to give you. I'll give you a free table if you come. Oh, okay. And then it becomes the, well, you gotta f- fly me out in the free table. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. And then, oh, then maybe a couple of extra bucks too. That'd be the, that'd be phase yeah. last. I don't know what I, I lost count of how many. Yeah. That's, that's true power right there. But no, I mean, it really is. And, um, and you know, uh, it's it there's something that like I've learned uh, I always credit this to Amy Reader and it's true it's like you have to go where people want you it, that's not how like I said with, with Amy it was you want me to draw that cover okay but does your does the art director does the publishers everybody who's going to have to approve this cover want me to draw the cover because otherwise I don't I don't care you know it's like I don't want to do it and then it's like oh can you change this can you change that it's like are you going to basically beg me to draw covers for you and everybody who's ever going to have to approve, you all have to beg me. And then if you all beg me, I guess I'll do it. You know what I mean? And 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 and, and to you know to an extent, that's you know you say oh you know she's earned it right. So to me, it's almost like I do that in a lot of life. It's like in in work, I should say. Do you really want me to do it? Do you want me to be a part of it? That's cool. I think it can translate very well to if you're a convention promoter and you want any talent. Do you really want them there? Well, if you really want them there, it's important. What are you going to have them do? What, you know, you're going to make sure that they, like I said, are in a nice place and, and they're taken care of and they're there to meet your fans and they got energy to meet your fans and all that other stuff. Gotcha. Well, I know we got to wrap it up. I want to thank you both for being part of this. Alex, one last really quick, if I could just get your yeah. hot take on something, just a, <laughs> a general comics journalism question. You know, we see in a lot of cases where DC and Marvel in particular, they'll you know, give a, a big scoop to a, a mainstream news outlet, whether it's like New York Times or USA Today. Bendis did an interview with Forbes announcing that he was going to be on the Superman books. As someone who works for a comic-centric news site, mm. I mean, how do you feel about something like that? Is there any kind of, like, maybe this is not the right word, but betrayal where it's like, hey, we're covering this industry day in and day out. Like, we should be getting this news, not Forbes. All right, all right. I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second because, like, how do, how do I put this? Um, my primary my primary issue with with comics as in general is that um, in a lot of ways, while it is a part of our culture, like our culture being like American culture, Western culture, whatever, it, it is also it has very much segregated itself from like other fil- like other me- types of media. You know, like you you never see people like talk about music or movies or books in the same way that people talk about comics. There are comics fans and then there's everyone else who likes other things. And to that extent, you know, having like comics remain within its bubble is like very problematic because like the industry can't grow. Like I don't begrudge anyone promoting and stuff like variety or stuff like the Hollywood reporter or, you know, like the New York times, because like that, that makes the most sense for their business. They're reaching like a very, very wide audience and they're, they're, you know, they're exposing new people and bringing them in to the medium. Like that honestly is better for us, I think, because like, even though we may not get the scoop or whatever, like we are still getting the news. We're still going to get the content and we're getting more people reading it, which means that, you know, in theory, the industry will grow 
and you'll have more people coming in that you can have these conversations with. You know, like it doesn't hurt us because like we still get the insider baseball type stuff. You know, we don't have to roll out the 15th new Batman book or like the Secret Empire 2 or whatever, like, you know, that kind of thing. You know, we have our own thing. They have their own thing. And as long as the medium grows, I, I really don't care all that much. Cool. I just want comics to be happy and healthy. Oh, that sounds like a healthy attitude to have. Yeah, I was just curious about that. Um, all right, anything else that either of you wanted to say before we sign off? No? All right, no, terrific. Well, thank you again to both of you for being part of this. It was great speaking with you. Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me on, Anthony. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you to everyone for listening. Be sure to come back in two weeks for an all-new episode. And until then, don't be a flat squirrel. Flat squirrel.